You are listening to KNNALP 95.7 FM, Lincoln, Nebraska. There seems to be a perception among Christians that Lutherans are somehow against holy living or against good works. And yet in the Catechism we confess that we ask God's name to be holy among us and that this takes place when the Word of God is taught in its truth and purity and we as children of God lead holy lives according to God's Word. God says, be holy, be perfect, as I the Lord your God am holy and perfect. But does he really mean it? Stay tuned for Equipping the Saints with Pastors Clint Poppy and Adam Moline. Welcome once again to Equipping the Saints. Pastor Clint Poppy, Pastor Adam Moline, Pastor Thomas Goodroad, and Vicar Noah Kirstein. Here we are. Uh, we've been uh, waiting for this episode for a long time. This is episode 64 of Equipping the Saints, and we're hoping to uh, wrap up our study of the book of James. It's been a um, marvelous, marvelous time together in God's Word, an often neglected book of Scripture. Sometimes Lutherans have a um, really bad perception or uh, preconceived notion with regard to the book of James. We've uh, we've gone verse by verse, sometimes word by word. Hopefully we've dispelled some of the um, crazy notions with regard to the book of James, and uh, it has uh, has been a very, very fruitful study. We've gotten lots and lots of great feedback as well. So um, thanks for tuning in, and uh, we're going to hit it real quick here. Pastor Moline, uh, comments with regard to the book of James before we get into our last uh, last little episode here. Well, thank you, Pastor Poppy. Um, hey, don't, you don't have to mock me. Mock uh, Pastor Goodroad. He's the one that said Moline in the intro. I know. I'll, uh, I'll deal with him later. Um, yeah, the book of James is a really great one because it is uh, – it is very pastoral in its tone. It's a pastor dealing with his congregation. It's an early book um, in uh, the writing of the scriptures. It uh, demonstrates already a reliable uh, understanding of the contents of the Gospels as well. You've seen that especially the last couple of weeks as we've talked about how much James is quoting the Sermon on the Mount. And so this is writing in the early 40s A.D. And if the Sermon on the Mount took place uh, you know, about 10 years before, that, that indicates that this is a very early testimony to that particular word of our Lord Jesus Christ, which I think is important. It flies in the face of those who say it's a later invention. Um, and uh, so you have this first-person uh, letter to a congregation quoting the words of Christ and teaching us how we ought to live as Christians, something that kind of has been lost in our modern day and era. There's a lot of uh, antinomianism and soft antinomianism that has always been floating around the church, kind of kind of ebbs and flows its ugly head. And uh, I think it's very, very timely that we've had the opportunity to be in James at uh, this time in Lutheranism. Uh, one of the things that I've really, really appreciated is your emphasis on the fact that James is first and foremost a parish pastor. 
And this is how parish pastors should be preaching and teaching in their congregation. Teaching, uh, first and foremost, uh, justification by grace through faith on account of the person and work of Jesus Christ. But not stopping there and continuing to teach Christians what the Christian life, what the Christian faith is actually looks like in real and concrete terms. As we uh, close out the fifth chapter and close out the book of James, we're going to start at verse 13. We looked at uh, verse 12 at the end of our uh, last episode, and verse 12, depending on the commentaries or the places that you look, is one of those transitional verses. Is it the conclusion to the preceding? Is it the introduction to these concluding remarks? It can really go both ways. Uh, We covered that in our last episode, we're going to start with verse 13. Vicar, would you, uh, would you read the end of James 5? Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth, and someone brings him back, Let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Um, Verses 13 through 18 really have kind of this focus, this general theme of prayer. And then the last two verses... um, aren't focusing on prayer, but uh, they give us kind of a, a final word, kind of a capstone to the book of James. So I want to I want to zero in, first of all, on verses 13 through 18 and prayer. Pastor Goodroad, um, Lutherans often struggle with prayer. And I don't mean only struggling with the amount of time they spend in prayer, but sometimes Lutherans really struggle with the whole topic of prayer. Why do you pray? If God knows everything, why do I need to tell him what's bothering me? Doesn't he already know that? If, if God knows everything, why doesn't he just act? What is this whole prayer thing? Uh, why do you think it is, and maybe this is a broader than just Lutherans, why do you think it is that Christians in general and Lutherans specifically struggle with this topic of prayer? I think that's a great question, and it's uh, kind of multifaceted. Um, I think that we could really chalk this up to a lot of different things. First thing that comes to my mind specifically is that Lutherans are very much against um, good works earning you something, you know, especially salvation. So when Lutherans talk about prayer, when we talk about you know praying for someone or over something, um, we're not thinking that this prayer is really going to like earn us salvation or anything like that. There are some Christians out there who do believe such a thing. Um, but simply praying or doing good works does not earn salvation. Only Christ and his sacrifice on the cross does that. So I think Lutherans have this proclivity to kind of 
think, well, you know, this isn't really doing that much, right? You know, because Christ has already done everything for us. He's already uh, died for our salvation, for the forgiveness of our sins. So what do we need to pray for, right? And I think that what you said, too, kind of uh, gets at the issue as well. It's that, you know, when, when we pray... God already knows everything that we're going to say. The Holy Spirit is already uh, making constant intercession for us on our behalf for everything that we could possibly need. Um, so that's, that's kind of things that come into our mind. But what's the reality? God, in multiple places, including from the very mouth of Jesus, commands us to pray. We are children asking our dear father for things. Uh, you know, when a child asks his father for something, well, his father already provides everything that he possibly needs, right? Um, but we still have that close, intimate relationship with God the Father. The Father commands us to pray to him, to ask him for things. This is one way that we show our faith, uh, one way that we increase our faith, our devotion to God, but it's also another way that we show love to our neighbor. That's another thing that God commands us to do. So we pray because our prayer is actually effectual. God does listen to the prayers of his children, you know, Christians, faithful Christians. And uh, sometimes that, that prayer can, uh, I don't want to say necessarily change God's mind or anything, um, but it will, uh, it will be effective. Is that, is that a fair way to put that? I think so, and we'll have a chance to flesh that out as we get into some of these uh later verses here because we need to define our terms what does it mean that a prayer is effective or affect you effectual um and i was trying not uh, to get too far ahead of us in our, yeah, in our and, reading here anything and, and, too but uh, I'm, i i wanted i wanted you to hit on command and promise command and promise because god commands us to pray and he promises to answer um vicar um we we have teased you for a whole year, and I know all all, te- <laughs> all teasing aside, um, you're a very pious man, and you've you've been a wonderful example of Lutheran piety in your time here. Um, your comments on why Lutherans struggle to pray. Your thoughts? Sure. I think um, in some ways in American Christianity, the way we have been taught how to pray is um, there's a lot of this quiet time that you set aside with God. And as you pray, you wait for God to whisper things back to you. And Lutherans, we, we, we don't believe this. We don't teach that this is how God acts and answers prayer. He speaks to us through his word. And yet the work, well, and yet American Christianity teaches us to expect this. And so this can kind of come into conflict and cause a little bit of concern for the Lutheran who is told everywhere else that you should just be hearing a little whisper of God. You should listen for his voice, for him to reveal what you should do. And so that might cause despair or concern and turn people away from prayer within the Lutheran church. Uh, Also, there's concerns in the Lutheran church about prayer, it's like, well, it's too rote, right? Um, we don't, we don't want to pray the Lord's Prayer every single time because then it somehow loses meaning. And this is also what American Christianity teaches. And there's just a lot of things working against our teaching of prayer 
that you can pray from your heart. You should pray the Lord's Prayer. You can pray the prayers of the Catechism, and you should pray these things. You should pray without ceasing. It doesn't matter what you are praying necessarily. It's that you are praying. And there's so many things in our lives and in our world that pull our attention away from prayer so that we aren't praying without ceasing. We jump to other things immediately instead of always coming to our Lord with prayer, with every request. I I appreciate that perspective, especially for the American Christianity um, understanding and uh, misunderstanding of prayer. Pastor Moline, in the time that we have left, um, verse 12 talks about not doing oaths. And verse 13 introduces a large section on prayer. Do you think that James is basically saying, um, rather than waste your time in foolish and silly oaths, use your mouth and your mind and your heart and your words for prayer instead? This is a way to sanctify your lips and sanctify your heart is through prayer rather than silly, foolish, sinful oaths? Uh, I think that is probably a part of it. I think even more, again, this is uh, James uh, being a pastor, being the brother of Christ, uh, driving his people back to the very words of Christ. And again, especially in this particular book, the Sermon on the Mount, um, because in that we do have the words about oaths um, at the end of Matthew chapter 5. And then right after that, we get to Matthew chapter 6, where Jesus teaches us to pray as well. And so If that's what James is doing, he's doing it the same way that Christ did first. And I think that that's probably a good blueprint for us as modern-day pastors and preachers and Christians is to uh, go back to the Word of Christ and do things that way. Very well said. Um, What do you do when somebody's sick? What do you expect when you pray? We're going to get into some uh, really, really important topics when we come back as we finish out our look at James chapter 5. It's equipping the saints. Don't change that dial. We'll be right back. You are listening to KNNALP 95.7 FM Lincoln, Nebraska. Welcome back to Equipping the Saints, Pastor Clint Poppy, Pastor Adam Oline, Pastor Thomas Goodroad, and Vicar Noah Kirstein. We serve the Saints at Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Lincoln. Thank you for tuning in. Um, as we were talking in general about prayer, we really didn't hit on a couple of the specifics in James 5.13. And Pastor Moline, I want to... Uh, I want to hit you with this first rhetorical question. Is anyone among you suffering? Um, Yes. Is that that a rhetorical question? Um, Or is there something specific going on? What's happening there? Uh, It is rhetorical. I think in this sense, he's really saying um, this is for you when you are suffering um, or, you know, if you are at a particular time is really kind of probably what he's saying this is what you do as a Christian uh, when you're suffering, pray. Uh, and uh, we see that again that example in our Lord Jesus Christ. Um, you know, in the Garden of Gethsemane, he prayed to the Lord. Um, and uh, the same for us when we are suffering or struggling or facing a challenge or a difficulty, 
what we ought to do is pray to God and tell him about it. We see that example in the Psalms from David over and over and over again. You know, that's why the Psalms say, you know, my enemies surround me. I don't know where to turn. I look up to the hills. Where does my help come from? Um, those aren't just, uh, you know, weird praise chants. They are actual prayers that we ought to probably emulate uh, by praying the Psalms and learning them a little more than we already have. I think uh, I think that's extremely well said. We will do anything and everything in the midst of our suffering. We will post about it on Facebook or the Twitter. We will whine and complain. We will um, abuse uh, food or alcohol or drugs. We will blame. We will do. We will worry. We will break the first commandment in just about any possible way in the midst of our suffering rather than pray. And when people tell me, oh, Pastor, you know, I'm, I'm really worried about the future of our country, my first step is pray. I'm really worried about such and such, uh, so many, somebody in my family. Pray. Summer, uh, kind of a, verse 13 to me is kind of a summary a Reader's Digest summary of the Christian faith. When you're suffering, pray, showing your dependence, absolute dependence, on the one true God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And when you're not suffering, when you're cheerful, sing praise to the one true God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, showing that you really believe that all good things come from the Lord. That verse 13 is just really, really a cool verse in how it kind of sums up in Reader's Digest form, the Christian faith. Um, we need to move on. I'd love to talk about more, uh, talk about this more, but we need to get into verse 14 because this, this is really, uh, for many people, kind of a sticky wicket section. If anyone, is anyone among you sick? Well, again, rhetorical question. There's always somebody among you sick. Listen to the prayers of the church on Sunday morning. We have a whole laundry list of members of our congregation, friends and family members of our congregation, uh, loosely connected people from our congregation. Uh, many of them are sick. Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him anointing him with oil, and if I remember my Greek, it's oiling him with oil, uh, in the name of the Lord. Okay. Um, Pastor Moline, first. Is this prescriptive or descriptive with regard to this whole calling the elders of the church, praying and anointing with oil? Yeah, that's a great question, and I suppose to answer that, we'd have to understand how far to take that prescription, right? Um, because our friends in the Roman Catholic Church take it as prescriptive to the point where they make this a sacrament, and we would say that's too far, that's too much. It's not sacramental in its nature, it's not um, bringing the forgiveness of sins uh, in this particular sense. Rather, we would say it's prescriptive that you should call your pastor, and your pastor should come and visit you in the hospital or when you're sick at home and pray over you. And um, we could probably have more conversation about the oiling part here in a minute, but uh, uh, that is what Christians do. And it's something that has been lost uh, amongst Christians here in the last 
I don't know how long. People don't let their pastor know as often anymore when they're in the hospital. We find out when they get out of the hospital and they come to church the next Sunday, call your pastor. We want to visit you. We want to see you in the hospital. We're there all the time. And uh, it's, it's, uh, it's kind of a sad thing sometimes when you go to the hospital to visit one person. You walk through the building, you up there, make your visit and come back, and you find out that someone else was there that you could have seen at the same time and you didn't even know it. Uh, call your pastor. That's his job, to bring you God's word as you are there uh, dealing with your illness or sickness or whatever. Uh, pastor Goodroad, I, I, know, I know you're not here to chide or correct Pastor Moline, but uh, the text says elder, and Pastor Moline made, made the jump to pastor. Um, James is really talking about calling your lay elder, right? Uh, the lay elder in the church. Isn't that what's going on here in verse 14 of James 5? Um, well, I think that you're right. I'm not here to chide Pastor Moline. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think that what he said was correct, the correct interpretation. Of, of course. Uh, my tongue uh, is in my cheek. <laughs> of course. I can see it there. But uh, no, it's that's that's what James is talking about here. The elder of the church being, you know, the the pastor. And it has a uh, plural here and everything. People could take that all kinds of different ways. But James is, is really just kind of speaking in general generalities here to, you know, a multitude of people. Hey, listen, whoever's reading this, call your pastor and have him come and visit. Anoint with oil, pray over him, all this kind of stuff. Um, so, yeah, pa- Pastor Molina is okay. right on track here. And I'm, I'm just going to piggyback on what you said, Vicar. Um, when we're when we read scripture and we come across terms like um, bishop, elder, presbyter, I have a hard time saying that word. Uh, all of these different bishop, all of these different terminologies. How should the person reading the scripture, whenever they come across these many multitude of terms, how should they think? In our language, it's your pastor. It's your called pastor, the one that God has sent to you to look after you, to care for your soul. Amen, amen, amen. So do not get hung up on the ranks, and certainly do not equate the word elder in your English translation with what we have in our churches today, lay elders. It's pastor. And uh, it's everywhere in Scripture don't uh, don't fall for that uh, that little gimmick, and um, uh, the elders do an important role in supporting their pastors. But these are the jobs of the pastor. And if the pastor uh, literally does not have the time, or is sick, or whatever, then he will get someone, uh, another pastor, or a, a well-trained elder to make the visits. But this is the pastor's job. This is the pastor's calling. I'll put like just a little teeny tiny asterisk on that. There's like one or two places in all of scripture where when it does say elder, it would be properly speaking about just kind of an older experienced member of a church. But 99 times out of 100, yes, elder equals pastor when we're talking in the scriptures here. Amen. Amen. This uh, Pastor Moline, this anointing with oil, is this like a medical procedure? Um, or is this, uh, is this something that is like, um, uh, some kind of like magic formula incantation? I mean, when I read scripture, when, um, when we see the, uh, parable of the good Samaritan, 
Uh, the Good Samaritan treats his wounds and anoints him with oil. Uh, it appears to me that Scripture talks about the anointing with oil not as some kind of mumbo-jumbo uh, magic act, but as a medical procedure, you know, much like you know, cleaning out the wound or applying uh, an antibiotic, something like that. Hey, hey, you're the historian here. Help me out. Yeah, uh, historically speaking, uh, so you mentioned the uh, parable of the Good Samaritan. In that particular instance, it is a medical procedure. Uh, there's two things that is poured on the wounded man at that time, and that's wine and olive oil. And those two things are poured on wounds uh, for the specific purpose of helping them uh, stay clean and to be healed more quickly. It's the neosporin, if you will, of the ancient world. The wine with a high alcohol content uh, helps to kill any of the bacteria and things in there. Of course, they didn't know that. They just knew that pouring wine on there helped. Um, and the oil helps to kind of soften things so that um, it can continue to heal together and grow together uh, rather than having a hard scab that's keeping everything um, from from healing and leaving a giant scar or, or scarring that makes it difficult to move later on. And so in that sense, yes, uh, olive oil and wine in that particular parable are a medical procedure. I think in this particular instance, there's even more that's taking place. Um, when you think about a person who's sick today, you know, we take them to the hospital and there's nurses that take care of them 24-7, right? They uh, help them to the bathroom or clean up after there's a bathroom incident. They wash the wounds. They sew them together. Everything is very sanitary and neat and nice. That's not the way that it was when James is writing this. There or, were, Or for much of history. Or for much of history. There weren't really hospitals um, yet. And uh, so a lot of these things are taking place in people's homes. And it is smelly and yucky and gross uh, as somebody is dying, as they're no longer in control of their bodily functions and things like this. Perhaps a wound is festering and the smell of rotting flesh is there. And so um, a part of this, this oil oftentimes is scented. Um, and the purpose then is to cover up the stench of death with something that smells pleasing and, uh, you know, brings you back to the worship of the church, you know, where there would be incense and oils as well. Uh, there is the idea of uh, anointing someone's forehead so that they have a uh, brighter countenance about them rather than having that uh, pale, ugly, dying look upon them. Where we you, would maybe wash someone's forehead with a wet washcloth now. Right, right. The, the same kind of thing. And so all these things then in that way are a confession of our faith in the resurrection and that, um, you know, even as we die in this world, whatever the, the reason and the process might be, for us as Christians, our hope is in the life that is to come. And so if we are dying with the smells of church and the word of God ringing in our ears while someone's praying over us, or even if we recover, uh, having these things is in a sense a transition into the world that is to come and uh, a now but not yet sort of confession in that. And I don't know if I'm making any sense or no, if I'm I, sounding crazy. No, here, I think so. that sounds good. I would just ask uh, one quick question, Pastor. Um, we see in the in scriptures, especially in the book of Psalms, reference to the oil of gladness. Is this is this the same kind of oil, or is that a completely different thing? 
I'm not um, prepared off the top of my head to answer. I know, so I could talk about the anointing of priests and things like that, and there was a particular oil that was used that had scent of uh, cinnamon, cassia, uh, other spices that was used in worship and in uh, the anointing of priests and things like that, the anointing of items in the tabernacle and the temple. I don't know if that's what Psalms are referring to or not. Uh, I just am not prepared to talk about it. Okay. Well, you know, as this, you know, as you're talking about the scent of uh, the scented oil, uh, re- reminded me of incense and let your prayers uh, come before me as incense. And we see visibly the prayers going up to God. And uh, there, there are so many wonderful word pictures here that Whoop. connect us back to the prayers of the church, the prayers of faith. And that's where we want to come back when we after our next break. Quipping the Saints, don't change that dial. You are listening to KNNALP 95.7 FM, Lincoln, Nebraska. Welcome back to Equipping the Saints, Pastors Poppy, Moline, Goodroad, and Vicar Kirstein. It is um, it has been great to be with you these uh, last months as we've been working our way through the Book of James. We're working really, really hard to uh, conclude our study today. This episode sixty-four. It's really tough because there's so much here. There's so many more things that could be said with regard to uh, these topics that we're, we're looking at, the anointing with oil, um, the uh, different types of anointings and oils in Scripture. I want to, um, I want to get to verse 15 because uh, verse 15 is a sticky wicket for a lot of people. The prayer, uh, uh, ESV says, and the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Now, when I look at this verse, and I'm going to start with Pastor Goodroad. When I look at this verse, it, uh, it said that I've got the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. So right away I think, oh, so prayer saves me. It's not God that saves me. It's prayer that saves me. And then the Lord will raise him up. Well, wait a minute. I thought it was my prayer that raised him up or that healed him. And now it's the Lord in here. And then it says, and uh, if he has committed sins, uh, again, rhetorical in nature, because all of us are sinners, he will be forgiven. Well, what in the world does the forgiveness of sins have to do with a healing prayer that's going on? I'm just, I got so many mixed up things going on in my head. Can you help sort this out? Yeah, let's uh, let's start at the very beginning here, what you're talking about. Um, well, I thought it was my prayer. Well, uh, who's really doing the praying here? And let me ask this question, and this is rhetorical here. Um, how is it that we are able to pray? Well, it is only because of the faith that has been placed in us by the Holy Spirit. Oh, Lord, open my lips. Exactly. And my mouth will declare your praise. Seems yes. I've read that somewhere before. Uh, seems like we've maybe said that before. <laughs> <laughs> I think we even chanted. Uh, hey, hey, how about that? Well, 
That's, that's how we are able to pray. So whenever we pray, we are not attributing that as a good work that we ourselves are doing, but we are attributing that work to the Holy Spirit because that is the only way in which we are able to pray um, in the name of God by the work of the Holy Spirit. So that, that very first premise there, well, it's, it's the prayer through you know the work of the Holy Spirit in the name of Jesus. Uh, that is what will what will heal the sick or save the one who is sick, as it says. Um, the Lord will raise him up. That's just consistent with what we've been talking about here. Whose work is this really? It is always God's work. We in and of ourselves with our fallen sinful natures are not able to do anything to help ourselves. Anything good that is happening to us, we always attribute to God. And uh, I think I would just be repeating myself if, if we get into, if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. How are all sins forgiven? Only through the saving work of Jesus Christ, his death on the cross. That is what forgives sins. It's not our own work, Pastor. And I think we could also, you know, approach this from a different topic. The only reason people get sick is because of sin. Right, and we the, see that in, in multiple places throughout the Bible. The general nature of sin, or maybe some specific sins, uh, all of our sickness is connected in one way, shape, or form to sin. And so the forgiveness of sins is not like this left field kind of a thing with regard to prayers for the sick and all this. Lenski has some amazing words here that are very, very timely. And I'm reading from uh, page 664 uh, of his uh, commentary on James. The prayer of such a faith does not act as a charm to produce the recovery, nor does it act by way of auto-suggestion, like mental healing. The elders are not prayer healers as we have today, nor are they miracle workers. James writes to many churches, and it is preposterous to think that the elders of all these churches were able to work miracles. The New Testament tells us very much about the elders of the apostolic churches, but nowhere does it ascribe miraculous powers to them. The thought is that the Lord will not withhold his answer to the prayers that are made in true faith, will not withhold recovery because of such sinning in the past. He will forgive and graciously heal. Pastor Moline, what do you think about that? I, I think that's interesting, and I... I I'd be curious if any of you are better at Greek than I am here. The word is not the normal word for prayer, you know, prosuko. Uh, it is a different word, uke, which is also then used in the book of Acts, two places. That's the only other place in Scripture that it is, uh, and means also a vow, right? Um, you know, so Paul could cut his hair because the time was up and he had been under a vow. And now we see this here, the vow of faith, that kind of a prayer, Almost which, which sounds kinda, like which kind of connects us back to the oaths, right? In verse twelve, you know, what are you going to use your mouth for? Sinful oaths or prayer or a God pleasing vow? Yeah, and and even makes me think, and this is probably a reach, right? Uh, our confirmation where we. We say, yeah, we're Christian. Here's what we believe, that kind of a vow or a confession out loud that takes place. And again, what's the point is that our faith is the thing that will save us and will raise us up uh, on the last day. Faith in Christ, that he's going to do these things. Thomas, you had a comment. I, I did, and I hate to take us back a little bit, but I think this is a, a, 
good thing to point out. Um, James here, he could be talking about specific sins that do cause some kind of specific illness. Because, like you pointed out, Pastor, that is a thing that happens in, in the scriptures. Someone will uh, sin in some specific way, and there will be some kind of specific illness or you know temporal punishment that is associated with that sin. If, if I am sexually promiscuous... I may get a sexually transmitted disease. Correct. That would just be one of a thousand examples. So I, I just I want to point that out that I, I've heard something before too. Um, this lady was like, "Oh, my husband, he he has uh, he got mouth cancer, lip cancer, whatever it was." I think it was because he just spent his whole life swearing like a sailor. Oh, gee, you know, and you know I've heard that kind of thing before. We cannot definitively say anything like that you know it, it's very hard for us to say oh yeah you you're going through this specific hardship just because of this specific sin yeah, don't However, sit too close to the television you'll go blind <laughs> 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 maybe there was some truth to that but i i do want to point out if there's something like that on your conscience that you immediately go oh i must have gotten lip cancer because of all of my swearing that is an indication that you have a sin on your conscience what do you do with sins that are on your conscience you confess them. You go to your pastor, you do private confession and absolution, you confess your sins, and you receive absolution for those specific sins. So that's, that's one way that your pastor can care for you in, in that kind of situation, and I encourage everyone who's listening to take advantage of that. And, and you're, you're spot on. Uh, you, need to, you need to view your pastor as your father confessor. That's not a bad thing. Uh, and it's also important to know that Lay people can forgive sins, not not in the church proper, you know, called and ordained. But husbands need to forgive wives. Wives need to forgive husbands. Neighbors need to forgive neighbors. And uh, this is this is part of the life of a Christian. The forgiveness of sins flows from the cross and empty tomb through the altar and font into all of the church. Pastor uh, Moline, I want to continue on here with verse sixteen. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Once again, we have this confession of sins and healing uh, all put together in, in one verse, in one almost one thought. Is this teaching us that the primary healing that we need as Christians is the forgiveness of sins and the, the physical, temporal healing of our bodies is less important or secondary in nature or is something else going on here? Uh, it, it is hinting that the healing of our body is secondary in nature in this sense uh, the hope that we have is that on the last day when Christ returns, he will raise our body perfectly and will be even better than we were in our prime here on earth. And so the only way that happens is if we die in the Christian faith. And so that's the most important thing, having the forgiveness of sins, the Christian faith preached into our ears, the Holy Spirit working it in our hearts uh, that we may believe in him. And so... Um, there's nobody out there who's not going to die at some time, and uh, all of our lives are going to end up the same way, whether we live for a long time or a short time, whether we die slowly and painfully or quickly and 
suddenly. Um, it doesn't matter about the style of the death or anything like that. What matters is what happens after we die. And that is determined by the faith that we have. And that's where the real hope needs to be. Vicar in uh, verses 17 and 18, James does, like he's done throughout this book, he gives us a concrete example of the Old Testament saints, and he talks about Elijah. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. He prayed fervently that it might not rain for three years and six months. It didn't rain on the earth. Then he prayed again. Heaven gave rain. The earth bore its fruit. Um, why would James go to Elijah at this particular point when we've been talking about prayer, effective prayer, confessing your sins, all these things, why would he go to Elijah as his example in these two verses? Well, it's a great example of um, something that was absolutely so miraculous it couldn't have been any other thing except the Lord working in this circumstance, that Elijah would speak a word and it would not rain on the earth for three years and six months. You can't explain that away. Um, it's, it just wouldn't happen if it wasn't an act of God. And so, once again, when he prayed um, after that time of three years and six months, then that very day there was a small cloud, and from that small cloud it, it just rained and rained and rained. And, th and praise be to God. Uh, and, you know, the sin, the, all the idolatry and things that are going on at this time, it was, it was kind of a, uh, I mean, the, the lack of rain was a pronouncement against all of the false idols that were there. And so we have this sin and prayer, and when the rains come, it's like a healing for the land. We got all these things kind of wrapped together. Pastor Goodrode, it says, um, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. I think most people read the Old Testament would say, no, Elijah was a super saint. He didn't have a nature like ours. Do you think James is making a point there by, by adding that little bit, Elijah had a nature just like ours? Yeah, I think that he is uh, setting the, the prophets and, and all the apostles and everybody else like that uh, just a step below the Son of God, Jesus Christ, because while Jesus Christ took on flesh and became a man, he also had a divine nature. We do not have a nature exactly like Christ. He shares our human nature, but we do not share his divine nature. You think that's fair to say? I think that's fair to say, and also Elijah is uh, just the instrument or the means by which God is doing his thing, performing this great miracle and demonstrating that he's on the throne, like he did in Isaiah 6, demonstrating that he alone is the giver of all good gifts. And as he gives the gifts, he can take those gifts away as well. Amen. We need to take a break. When we come back, we're going to finish out James 5. We have verses 19 and 20 left. And, folks, they're great. Don't change that dial. Equipping the saints. You are listening to KNNA. LP 95.7 FM Lincoln, Nebraska.
Welcome back to Equipping the Saints and our study of James. This is episode 64, and we are uh, concluding our look at James 5 and our look at the book of James. Pastor Moline and Pastor Goodroad will be continuing on with Equipping the Saints, and they will be looking at the book of Proverbs. And uh, so that'll be an amazing, amazing uh chance to continue many of the things that we've talked about right here in James and uh, living the Christian life. You can go to uh, KNNA Theological uh, Programming, and we have hundreds of hours of podcasts that are there. Uh, Specifically, the book of James is episode 44 through 64. And uh, you can check all those past episodes out. Vicar, we want to conclude James, verses 19 and 20 of chapter 5. Would you read those, please? My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Seems like some pretty significant words here. At the uh, at the end of James, and again, I don't know. This isn't really couched as a rhetorical question, but if anyone among you wanders from the truth, um, Pastor, all I have to do is walk down the hall and look at all the confirmation pictures here at Good Shepherd um, to be painfully reminded of how people wander from the truth. Um, this is. Uh, this is a pretty relevant passage, isn't it? Yeah, or to look at uh, the membership of uh, congregations in the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod as a whole, right? Um, you know, you sent out the other day a list of the largest congregations in our church body, and it had both the baptized membership compared to the actual attendance membership. And, and two of those top 20 were in Lincoln, and three of those top 20 were in Nebraska. Four. Four of them, yeah. Oh, four. Um, yeah, four were in Nebraska. And uh, we're not any better, so, you know, <laughs> to put yeah. ourselves up per- there. Percentage-wise, we're not any better. Right. Uh, it's like one in six to one in ten of the membership actually shows up on a Sunday morning. And uh, that is the very definition of wandering from the faith, the fact that uh, people— don't love Christ enough to come and to be in his presence once a week for an hour. I mean, imagine if that was your spouse, right? Do you want to spend more than an hour a week with your spouse who is temporary that will, uh, uh, you know, uh, you it won't be your spouse when you die and leave this, this earth? Um, that's, that's crazy to think about. But it's, uh, it's, it's really kind of the nature, the sinful nature that is in inside of us. You know, you mentioned, uh, spending time with your spouse. How many times when we're courting and wooing someone, won't we spend hours and hours and hours and uh, talking on the phone? Or I don't know how people do it now. Vicar, you'll have to school us at some point in time. Do you do this by text or direct message? Or do you still actually like talk to people on the phone? I don't know how that works. But I can remember when I was in high school and, uh, you know, uh, my girlfriend in high school is now my wife of uh, 45 plus years. And when we were on the phone as 15 year old kids, it would be like, uh, well, you hang up first. No, you hang up first. Uh, well, what are you going to wear to school tomorrow? Let's dress alike. Uh, you just, you couldn't get enough of that. And then, 
now listen to how people talk about their spouses. You know, it's like, oh, the water department said this. Oh, the old ball and chain. It's just, it's kind of a, a sinful nature that, that rears its ugly head. That that which is the most dear and most precious to us becomes almost a nothing. Right. And your spouse, uh, even if you call her the old battle axe or whatever it is that you uh, you call her, Pastor Goodroad. Um, <laughs> Do not put that sin on me. <laughs> <laughs> you still spend more than an hour a week. And how much more precious really is Christ and his word and his gifts that mean our eternal salvation and life forever? Um, and we spend even less time in God's house than we do with our spouse, and that is uh, shameful on our part. We ought to repent, as this particular verse is hinting and alluding to. We need to spend time in God's house. We need to spend time in God's Word. Uh, I remember a uh, sermon, from, a confirmation sermon that Pastor Burnt, there's a name from the past, uh, gave, and uh, he exhorted his newly confirmed people to uh, get out their date book, and to write in their date book for the rest of their life, church, every Sunday morning. And that church, the divine service, worship, should be the excuse to not attend everything else on Sunday morning rather than the way it has turned into uh, here in our world today. And so I think... I think staying away from God's house, staying away from God's word is certainly horrific. And it's a slow, gradual drifting away of the faith. Lenski uh, points out one other thing that I think we would be remiss if we didn't talk about it. Uh, In our Sunday morning Bible study, we've been working through James 1. And one of the things that Paul exhorts uh, Titus, Titus Titus 1, sorry. Uh, One of the things Paul exhorts Titus and uh, the readers of Titus is to avoid Jewish myths. And uh, recently we had an opportunity to talk about all the different Jewish myths that are alive and well in our world today. Lenski on uh, 671 and 672 says, What was one of the greatest dangers that threatened his readers? Why? Of course, to revert to Judaism. To be sure, James also includes all mortal sins, but the most damnable and deadly sin is unbelief. Read what is written to other Jewish Christians who were thinking about going back to Judaism. Hebrews 6, Hebrews 10. Doctrine and faith are never mere opinions or just ways of thinking. Behind and beneath all wrong morals is wrong doctrine, more or less unbelief. What erring from the truth means to James is all too apparent from what he says about turning such an erring one back to the truth. Such erring means that a soul is in death and in a multitude of sins. When a Christian loses the truth, it is notoriously difficult to turn him back to it. Pastors, um, which one of you wants to uh, comment on Lenski's comment? Yeah, the last part, when someone um, turns away, it is very difficult to return them to that. In fact, um, when someone turns away from the faith, 
uh, I think Jesus says that that state is worse than they were at the beginning, which is really something if you stop and think about it uh, and how hard that means that um, does he does he say too it'd be better if he had never believed at all uh, in that sense because there's a better chance for bringing them back to the faith at that point than yeah, there was somebody like Jesus said that yeah that, well that's <laughs> yeah. I think that's what I said okay <laughs> maybe I maybe I missed that you know um, you know my hearing yeah and so it, it is it isn't something to take lightly if you are in the faith um, I mean this in terms of your Christian life work hard to remain in the faith. Uh, value being in the faith, come to church often and work hard at feeding that faith through the word and the sacraments um, that you may remain in it and not wander away from it. That's dangerous and it is not good at all. This uh, phrase, uh, turning back, shall turn back, uh, is sometimes translated convert. Um. Pastor Good wrote, how does this turning back, or if you would prefer, this converting happen? Um, gosh, that's a little bit of a hard but also easy question. Um, I say hard because do we know exactly how that happens? Uh, not exactly, but it's easy because we say it's through the work of the Holy Spirit. Through the Word. Um, the Holy Spirit works through the Word in order to create faith in someone, in order to create repentance in someone. Repentance, you know, that is the, the turning away from sin. And if you're turning away from sin, what are you turning towards? God. And that's what the Holy Spirit does. Uh, that's what the Holy Spirit works in the heart of man, is a turning towards God, this uh, kind of reconciliation with God. Repentance and faith. God uh creates and strengthens faith through the means of grace not there's nothing new here there's nothing changing here vicar uh at the at the very end of verse 20 it says uh let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins this wording here with regard to covering and covering a multitude of sins. Is this talking like, um, you know, when, when I've got a mess in my office and I lift up the rug and I sweep the dirt under it and cover the dirt with the rug, is that, is that kind of what we're talking about? Or is there a different covering that's in mind? Uh, it's not quite just kind of sweeping things under the rug. Aha! Aha! Um. It's more like Jesus' blood spilled out on his cross washes away all of your sin, and Jesus takes your sin from you and in its place leaves his perfect robe of righteousness and his innocence and blessedness. That's the covering with which you are covered. That is beautifully well said. Um, it's all about Jesus. There is only one way in which this covering or some would say hiding can be done and that's the blood of jesus and the book of james is dripping with the blood of jesus well yeah so with that in mind pastor poppy i'm going to take over here for a second we have just a couple minutes left this is uh your last recording uh, of the radio with us on this show before your retirement. Is there anything you want to say about the blood of Jesus and uh, as you uh, kind of come to the end of this? Um, I, I caught I, you off guard there. I didn't I, warn you. <laughs> I would 
No, you didn't catch me off guard. And I was trying to decide whether I was going to say something or just kind of slide off into oblivion. Um, you know, it was several years ago when the idea of a radio station happened here at Good Shepherd. Uh, by the grace of God, KNNALP uh, 95.7 in Lincoln was formed. The church is not the radio station. The radio station is not the church. But the radio station has been a great, great blessing for the people of God here at Good Shepherd and for the people of God throughout the world. It's been probably the most significant mission uh, activity that we have ever done here at Good Shepherd. And uh, it's been a privilege to be a part of that. It's, been, it's very humbling you know, when you hear your voice on the radio. Um, but most of all... Uh, Everything that we have done here at KNNALP 95.7 has been about the blood of Jesus Christ, which covers us from all sin. 1 John 1, verse 7. And uh, I know, based on uh, Pastor Moline and Pastor Goodroad and uh, the radio board and the makeup of this congregation, that that will be the theme going forward. Um, it has been an honor and a privilege. It's been an honor and a privilege to uh, work with all three of you, Vicar Kirstein, uh, former vicar, now pastor Goodroad, and former member of Good Shepherd, and now Pastor Moline. It, um, it's been an honor and a privilege. Thank you. And remember, that it is never about the messenger. It is always about the message. And that message is Christ crucified and risen for you and for the life of the world. Thanks for listening to Equipping the Saints. Equipping the Saints will be back with the book of Proverbs very soon. God's richest blessings in Christ. You are listening to KNNALP 95.7 FM, Lincoln, Nebraska.